Hey, Mike, I got a question for you. What's up, Sean? Do we have a website? Not only do we have a website, we're getting a new website as well. A new website? Oh, my gosh. You can find our show now at texaspodcast.fm. .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. So here's the plan, folks. We've got a new site, texaspodcast.fm. We're going to be going live soon. You'll find the site, new look, new feel, all the same great podcasts. You don't need to update your feed. You don't need to change anything right now. But uh, just check it out. Wait, wait. You're telling me that there are people out there that don't love Jerry Jones. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, the talk show about Texas by Texans. We're three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State, share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. A legend in football, a legend in Texas, the man who turned the Cowboys into America's team. Today we're talking about Coach Tom Landry. But first, what's your favorite Texas football team, past or present? Well, look, I'm just going to stop and say it. Uh, Texas football, it's Houston Oilers for me. Love you, Blue. I'm going to go with a team that I have never actually seen, the Mighty Mites, uh, which was the football team of the Masonic Widows and Orphans Home of Texas. It was an orphanage in Fort Worth. And in the 1930s, they had a football team, uh, despite the fact that they were undersized and barely had 11 players on the field at any time. Uh, they were dominant in football in the state of Texas and even won uh, several state championships. So the Mighty Mites. That's and they could, pretty cool. They, yeah, they drew they drew up to 12,000 people to their to their stands because the Masonic men of the of the Dallas Fort Worth area uh, would support this team because they were Masons. And so they these were the children of their their brother Masons who would passed on or were too poor to take care of their kids. So Mighty Bites. Very cool. Yeah. Well, it's a good choice, but uh, I am going to go with my hometown team, the Texas City Stingers, because, in uh, all honesty, that's probably the uh, only football team I ever really cared about. <laughs> I, I, that's my second favorite team because my brother, Ryan McIver, is the defensive coordinator for that team currently. Yay, Texas City. Go Stingers. Go Stingers. Born and raised in Texas, Tom Landry spent the majority of his life there, only leaving briefly to serve for a time in the military during World War II and as a professional player and coach. But it was only appropriate that he return to lead Texas' most prominent football team, according to some, to its greatest years of glory, according to some. Winner of two Super Bowls, five NFC titles, 13 division titles, and with a final record of 270-178-6, to to the third most wins for any NFL coach in history behind Don Shula and George Hallis, with 29 consecutive years as coach of one team and a whopping 20 consecutive winning seasons, two records that have never been broken. Tom Landry is a modern legend in a state where football is often an obsession and sometimes a religion, and it didn't hurt matters any that he was a native-born son of Texas. Under Landry's leadership, the Dallas Cowboys played in 12 NFL or NSC championship games over a span of 17 years, from 1966 to 1982. And within that span, they appeared in 10 out of 13 championships. He took the Cowboys to five Super Bowls in between 1970 and 1978. And it was during these glory years that the Cowboys were given the nickname America's Team 
due to their impressive success and the fact that they were on television more than any other NFL team. Landry didn't like this title because he felt that it spurred the rest of the teams in the league to compete harder against the Cowboys. Not that it did his opponents any good. Thomas Wade Landry was born to Ray and Ruth Landry in Mission, Texas on September 11, 1924. He was the second of four children. His parents had moved to Texas from the Midwest because Ray hoped the warmer climate would help alleviate his rheumatism. Coming to Texas for your health seems to be a theme. Ray was an athlete, making a mark locally in the Midwest, both as a pitcher and football player. Tom followed in his father's footsteps, playing as a triple-threat quarterback that passed, ran, and punted in high school. He led his team to an undefeated season in his senior year. Tom had an amazing 322-0 accumulated score, an average of almost 27 points per game. As might be expected, the Mission High School Stadium is named Tom Landry Stadium. Landry went on to attend the University of Texas and earned a degree in industrial engineering. He considered going to Mississippi State University, but he knew that it would take him far away from his friends and family. In fact, the main reason he remained at UT was because he felt like Mississippi State was too far away for his parents to travel to see him play. He only went to school for one semester before going to serve in the United States Army Air Corps during World War II. His inspiration for joining the military? It was his brother Robert. Robert enlisted in the Army Air Corps after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Robert was lost while ferrying a B-17 to England and went down over the North Atlantic. It was several weeks before the Army was able to officially declare him dead. Tom took his basic training at Shepherd Field, which is now Shepherd Air Force Base, near Wichita Falls. And like many soldiers and airmen during World War II, he then moved on to his pre-flight training at Kelly Field near San Antonio, and we've talked about that in past episodes. So he was still able to stay in Texas for most of his training. His first experience in a bomber was not exactly reassuring. A few minutes after takeoff, he realized the pilot was working frantically because an engine had died. The plane didn't go down, however, and... Landry remained committed to flying. Landry was transferred to Sioux City, Iowa, where he finished his training as a co-pilot for a B-17 Flying Fortress. That from there, he was deployed to Liverpool, England, and he was assigned to the famed 8th Air Force. He was based with the 493rd Squadron in Ipwich. Between November 1944 and April 1945, Landry completed a combat tour encompassing 30 missions and he survived a crash landing in Belgium when his bomber ran out of fuel. He was a first lieutenant by the time he got his discharge. Landry returned to school at the University of Texas in the fall of 1946. He played fullback and defensive back for the Longhorns. He was on the team when it won bowl games on New Year's Day for both 1948 and 1949. He earned all Southwest Conference honors as a junior and served as team co-captain his senior year. He was active off the field as well as on the field. He was a member of the uh, fraternal organization Texas Cowboys and the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. Tom received his bachelor's degree in 1949 and three years later earned a master's degree in industrial engineering from the University of Houston. Landry met and married Alicia Wiggs while they were still in college. Their wedding took place in January of 1949 and they remained married until his death 51 years later. The Landry's had three children, Tom Jr., Kitty, and Lisa. After college, Tom went on to play professionally in the short-lived All-American Football Conference. 
He started with the New York Yankees, but only played for them for one season before the AAFC folded. The Yankees actually drafted Tom in 1948 while he was still in college, and in fact Landry had just finished his last college season game when Jack White, an assistant coach for the Yankees, took him aside. He offered Landry a contract for $6,000 plus a $500 signing bonus. Tom used this money to pay for the wedding to Alicia. Landry's first game was against the AAFC's powerhouse team, the Cleveland Browns, which were coached by legendary coach Paul Brown. The team was full of future Hall of Famers like Lou Groza, Bill Willis, and Otto Graham. This opening appearance was not exactly stellar, and the receiver that he was assigned to cover, Max Speedy, set an AAFC record for receiving yards in the game. The day wasn't all that bad, though. While he was getting a drubbing in the field, Alicia was giving birth to their first child, Tom Jr., which was a fact that Tom Sr. didn't know until the game was actually over. And Tom also, now Landry also had the pleasure of playing in the same venue as the far more famous baseball-playing Yankees as both teams shared Yankee Stadium. The young Tom Landry was awed by seeing names from the Bronx Bombers like Joe DiMaggio and Phil Rizzuto in some of the lockers that he was suiting up in. The AAFC folded at the end of the season, though, and Yankees were not one of the teams that were taken into the NFL. The New York Giants took Landry in the dispersal draft. The Giants originally drafted Landry in 1946 as a futures pick, which allowed the NFL teams to draft underclassmen and hold their rights until they completed college. Landry had served as a punter for the Yankees after the normal player was injured in the preseason and kicked for the Giants as well as his other roles. It was as part of the Giants and under the leadership of their head coach, Steve Owen, that Landry got his first shot at coaching himself. Rather than explaining the 6-1-4 defense to his players, Owen called Landry up and had him explain it. Owen lost his job over the terrible 1953 season, which featured a crushing loss to the Cleveland Browns at 62-10. Landry's star was on the rise, though, and he was selected as an All-Pro in 1954, and he played in 1955 as well, though in both seasons he acted as an assistant coach to the new head coach, Jim Lee Howell. 1955 was his last season as a player, and by the end of his career on the field, he's had three interceptions for 404 yards with three touchdowns and 10 fumble recoveries for 67 yards and two touchdowns. In those short seven years, he also led the league in punting yards three times, once more proving his amazing athletic versatility. While coaching in the 54 season, Landry was the defensive coordinator and worked opposite another name familiar to even the most casual football fan. Vince Lombardi, who was the offensive coordinator. Now, Landry led one of the best defensive teams in the league in the four seasons between 1956 and 1959. Lombardi and Landry created a fanatical loyalty within their team, and this drove the Giants to three appearances in the NFL championship game during those four seasons. In these three championships, they beat the Bears in 1956, but lost to the Baltimore Colts in both 1958 and 1959. And if you don't think it's a big deal... Think about Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi. Tom Landry was defensive coordinator. Vince Lombardi was offensive coordinator on this team. That's a big deal. That's an, yeah. I can only picture, like, that's a lot of hat. Yeah. <laughs> in 1960, Landry returned to Texas and found his final home as a coach. Landry was the first head coach of the brand-new team, the Dallas Cowboys. 
He would hold the title of head coach for an amazing 29 seasons, longer than any head coach has ever been with any team in the NFL. The Cowboys got off to a rocky start and had an 0-11-1 record for their first season and had five or less wins in each of their next four seasons. Nevertheless, owner Clint Murchison Jr. obviously believed in Landry's potential and gave him a 10-year extension on his contract. As history showed, this proved to be a good move on Murchison's part. Landry's hard work and determination began to pay off, and in 1965, they had a 7-7 season. The next year, they surprised everyone by posting 10 wins and making it all the way to the NFL championship game. Landry faced his old friend and co-worker, Vince Lombardi, in this contest, and unfortunately came out second, with the Cowboys losing to the Green Bay Packers. Landry's innovative style was evident from the beginning of his coaching career. He created the 4-3 defense when he was still the Giants' defensive coordinator and brought it to the Cowboys. The defense features four linemen and three linebackers rather than the five linemen and two linebackers that was standard previously. While he was with the Giants, this third linebacker was the legendary Sam Huff, who said of his role in the formation, quote, Landry built the 4-3 defense around me. It revolutionized defense and opened the door for all the variations of zone and man-to-man coverage that are used in conjunction with it today. Well, Landry developed some of his innovations specifically to counteract his old friend Vince Lombardi's tactics. And that makes sense since they would scrimmage against each other back in the Giants days. The Packers were using a run-to-daylight strategy, which meant that the running back went to any open space he could find rather than a specifically assigned hole in the line. Landry decided that the best counter was a defense that flowed to daylight to blot it out. He refined his 4-3 defense by moving two of his linemen back a yard and created and varied which linemen were moved based on where they thought the offense might run. This created a flex defense, and it used keys, which he invented to analyze offensive tendencies. Three flex defenses were created, strong, weak, and tackle. This zone defense was very innovative for the day, as nothing had ever been done like it before. And again, if you don't follow football, it's okay. This is a big deal. It basically made the defense a lot more flexible in handling how it could respond to the offense. After inventing the flex defense, Landry invented an offense to score with it. He revived the man in motion, which is where one of the receivers moves uh, behind the line of scrimmage prior to the ball being snapped, and also shifted to the shotgun formation, where the quarterback sits uh, a little further behind the line of scrimmage instead of right at the line. Landry's biggest contribution in the realm of offense was the use of, quote, pre-shifting, where the offense shifted from one formation to another before snapping the ball. This wasn't really a new tactic. It had been developed by Amos Alonzo Stagg around the turn of the 20th century, but Landry was the first coach to use it on a regular basis in uh, the NFL. Landry's innovative vision went beyond plays and into team building as well. While the linemen of the 60s were shorter, stockier, leveraged players, Landry drafted taller, leaner linemen like six foot seven George Andre, six foot six Jethro Pugh, and six foot nine Ed Tutal Jones. These individuals with their longer arms were able to get more leverage during the pass rush. Landry also brought in Alvin Roy, a professional weightlifter, and Boots Garland, a college track coach, to help make the Cowboys stronger and faster. While these kind of strength and speed programs are standard today, specialty coaches like this were not used in the league before Tom Landry. Yeah, I mean, it, coaches were like he was. They were other former players. So to bring in an outsider was, was a pretty big deal. 
Uh, Landry was also one of the first NFL coaches to recruit outside of the college football pipeline. He recruited several Latin American soccer players, including Efren Herrera and Rafael Septian, to serve as place kickers for the Dallas Cowboys. He went to track and field stars for speedy players. For example, Bob Hayes, who was once considered the fastest man in the world, played wide receiver. Landry was also the first head coach to have a quality control coach. Ermal Allen analyzed game film and charted the tendencies of other teams for the Cowboys of the 1970s. Landry used this information to predict what his opponents were going to do based on down and distance. Like his now, like many of his other innovations, this standard this is now standard analytics practice throughout the NFL. So there you go, analytics. Love it. It's Moneyball. Yes. <laughs> now, perhaps one of the best indications of just what an amazing coach Landry was are the number of other famous coaches who were once his assistants. In 1986, for example, five of the head coaches of the NFL were former Landry assistants, including Mike Ditka. With defensive stars Bob Lilly and Randy White and quarterback Roger Staubach, Landry coached in five Super Bowls with a 2-3 record and a combined score from his winning games of 51-13. and 13. Curiously, both Tom's wins came in New Orleans, and all three of his losses were at Miami's Orange Bowl Stadium. The Cowboys lost to the Baltimore Colts on their first appearance. Then their first win came in defeating the Miami Dolphins 23-3. In what is now considered a classic game, they lost to the Steelers, and then lost to them again in a rematch, which is generally considered just as good a game. But before that game, Cowboys linebacker Thomas Hollywood Henderson said, Terry Bradshaw couldn't spell C-A-T if you spotted him the C and the T. In his autobiography, Landry said that he cringed when he heard that, feeling like Bradshaw didn't need any additional motivation going into a game like the Super Bowl. Although he was a dominant force in the NFL in the 1970s, by 1984, Landry's career was on the decline. The Cowboys had reached the NFC Championship game three years in a row from 1980 to 1982, but they lost every time. Oilman oil Bum Bright bought the team in 1984, and the Cowboys' performance only continued to fall. They were 10-6 in 85, 7-9 in 86, 7-8 in 87, and a terrible Three and thirteen in 1988, which was the worst record they'd had since the 60s. Understandably, old Bum was a little bit less than impressed by the performance of his investment, and Landry's strategies and stubbornness during these seasons made the public critical of him as well. Nonetheless, Landry was given a new three-year contract in the summer of 1987. Manager Tex Tram hired new offensive line and special teams coaches in 86 and 87, a move that some suggested was made to divide the coaching staff and undermine Landry so he could be dismissed. Bright was usually silent about Landry's coaching, but after an embarrassing loss to the Falcons in 87, he complained, quote, it doesn't seem like we've got anybody in charge who knows what he's doing other than Tex. He also felt that top draft picks Danny Noonan and Herschel Walker were not being played enough. Two weeks later, a day after the Cowboys lost to the Lions, a team which was in a four-way tie for the worst record in the NFL, Schramm publicly said, There's an old saying, if the teacher doesn't teach, the student doesn't learn. Nonetheless, Bright did not step in, and Schramm otherwise retained his confidence in Landry. The 1988 season was particularly bad for Landry. At 3-13, and they had the worst record in the NFL. 
It was the fourth time in five years they'd missed the playoffs and their third consecutive losing season. But Landry was not ready to step down as head coach. That February in 1989, he said that he would coach into the 90s unless I get fired. And he still had a year left on his million-dollar-per-season contract. Well, two weeks later, he got fired. This came shortly after Bright sold the Cowboys to Jerry Jones. Bright had suffered major losses to his banking, real estate, and oil businesses during the savings and loan crisis, and he just had to sell the team. Had Bright been able to keep the team, he might have kept Landry on, though later in 1990 he stated that he'd wanted to fire Landry as far back as 1987, but Tech Schramm told him there wasn't a suitable replacement ready to go. Well, Jones had a suitable replacement. He hired Jimmy Johnson, who was then the coach of the University of Miami. Schramm was in tears during the press conference when he announced a coaching change, and he was actually removed as general manager shortly thereafter. Tears were shed by Landry two days later when he met with the players for the final time, and they responded to his farewell speech with a standing ovation. It marked the end of an era as Landry and Schramm had been working together at the Cowboys for 29 years. Although Landry was criticized by the public during his declining season, he remained popular and he received massive public support after his firing from the city of Dallas and from fans in general. I remember that time. People were furious. Everyone forgot about the poor seasons of the 80s, and they just remembered good old Coach Landry and how terrible this was that was happening. So it's a big, big deal. Landry also received support and sympathy because Jerry Jones' handling of the situation was often denounced by fans and the media as lacking in class and respect for one of the legends of the game. Jones stated that he never considered keeping Landry on and only bought the team because he could hire Jimmy Johnson as the coach. He also gave Landry no warning before he made the announcement. Jones has since said he regretted the way the termination was handled, but even today, there's still some resentment from fans about Landry's mistreatment. Wait, wait. You're telling me that there are people out there that don't love Jerry Jones. <laughs> yep. There's people that don't like the way that Jerry Jones does things. Huh. Wow. It's crazy, I know. I know you learn something new every day on this podcast. It didn't take long for Landry's nearly three-decade successful coaching career to be recognized. In 1990, he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame less than two years after his last game. He was also inducted into the Ring of Honor, which is the Cowboys Hall of Fame, in 1993. He'd been invited to enter several times before, but 93 was his year. Landry's only other foray into football was a limited partner of the San Antonio Riders of the World League in 1992. Otherwise, he lived a quiet life until he was diagnosed with acute leukemia in May of 1999. He died from the disease less than a year later on February 12, 2000. His funeral was held at Highland Park United Methodist Church, his church home for 43 years. He is buried at Sparkman Hillcrest Memorial Park Cemetery in Dallas. Well, a cenotaph to Tom, complete with a depiction of his famous fedora, was placed in the official Texas State Cemetery in Austin, Texas. A representation of that fedora was also worn as a patch on the Dallas Cowboys jerseys during the 2000 season, to honor the passing of who was arguably their greatest coach. A bronze statue of Tom Landry was also placed outside of Texas Stadium in Irving and then was moved along with the Cowboys to AT&T Stadium in Arlington when they relocated. The section of I-30 between Dallas and Fort Worth was named Tom Landry Highway by the Texas legislature in 2001. In a state where football is king, 
In a state where football is king, Tom Landry stands as a legend, and his legacy is the greatest. T- and his legacy as the greatest coach of America's team has never had any danger of being threatened. And the man knew how to wear a hat. That's for yeah. sure. Man, I mean, you can't beat. Uh, <clears throat> you cannot beat Coach Tom Landry. Yeah, those those. Uh, I don't think they're fedoras. I think they're trilbies, aren't they? Hmm. That he wore. It might be. I don't know. I just think they're a cool looking hat. Yeah, those those little hats that that he wore. I mean, it, he just had. I mean, you you just you have that image of this this guy in in a suit that was usually plaid uh, of some kind uh, with that hat and holding that holding that rolled up uh, a rolled up paper that, mm-hmm. that he had his plays on and, and standing on the sideline with that steely Clint Eastwood look to him you know Ed Harris Clint Eastwood look I'd love to see Ed Harris play you know Tom Tom Landry <laughs> at the very tail end of his career that would be great that'd be a really good uh yeah, that'd be a good biopic. But, uh, yeah. well, you know, it's interesting about the, the guy is that he's just, he's like so many of these people of that generation of, you know, seems like a very humble, hardworking um, guy and, you know, was in the, did his, did his time in the military, got out of the military, went back to school, just kind of nose to the grindstone. But uh, we we forget about, I think, because for us, I know for me, it's just like, He's just a, a the image of the hat and just being America's coach and that kind of thing of just he was this this amazing coach and that's just I think of him as well that that's what a great coach looks like and uh, it's ironic though that you're like oh no he he and Vince Lombardi worked together for all this time you're like oh wow You've, you know so it's just it's there's a lot more to the man than just the hat and the image of what mm-hmm. we just kind of conflate him to as as children of the 80s <laughs> yeah i i just see him with that steely eye you know that 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 steely look of determination and grit just he he just looked like he had grit you know but classy grit not like he wasn't like a dirty old man he was just like i'm wearing a suit and we're gonna win this football game and that's it there is no there's no other thing about it you know and he was extraordinarily innovative in when he when he became a head coach um, there's just, there's, you know, we talked about all those things and, you know, those who don't know a lot about football, which I don't claim to know a great deal about football. Um, <clears throat> but those who know a lot about football, like there's just, there's things that he did that they still do today that the, the, that he brought back or made popular, the, the man in motion behind is still used to, you watch a football game, you're going to see that done. You're going to see the offense shifting right before the snap into a different, different position to uh, a different formation to throw off the defense. So those things occur and and that they came from Tom Landry and and the other thing is that he was directly responsible for building the team um, in every way, beca- building that team to become this media sensation in the 1970s. And that's that's something also is that's that's forgotten about is you know it wasn't really Murchison or even you know Tech Stram had a lot to do with that you know with the creation of the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders, but it was the whole package. But it started with Tom Landry building a team that everybody could get behind and cheer. And, you know, today the Dallas Cowboys is the most recognizable sports brand in the world. And it's one of the single most valuables. You know, it's you know, Jerry Jones bought that team for $140 million. Uh, it's worth 2 to $3 billion today. So, you know, it's, you know, it's a spot. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, 
that you took the Cowboys to the place where they're, uh, ironically, uh, considering the team that uh, Tom Landry started playing for, uh, the Cowboys in a lot of ways are like the New York Yankees in the baseball world, mm-hmm. where yeah. either um, a ton of people all over the, the world or the nation or the world uh, love the team or they love to hate them. Um, but either way, you uh, you look at them as uh, you know being very well known and having a reputation for greatness, whether or not they've uh, earned that uh, lately or not. Well, I think it yeah, goes and, to uh, I think it goes to the fact you say the Yan- like talk about loved hated teams. I, I think <clears throat> there's a you know there's just how about this way? There's just a couple topics where you can throw it out and people they have an opinion. Yes, it's yes or no. They're never on the fence. And the Dallas Cowboys is one of those things of, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like the Cowboys, a lot of people who love the Cowboys. But I feel like Tom Landry earns your respect and rises above that. Like, I can't see anybody who's, like, not loving, like, being, not respecting in, in the man for, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and when, you know, when you know, those last couple of years with the Cowboys were, were pretty bad and people were mm-hmm. not happy, you know, with them. But... Uh, and he and to be fair, you know, he he was not able to adapt and change, you know, after a certain that's what cost him his job um, in, in but how Jerry Jones handled it. Certainly there was a massive outcry of fury and and there's conspiracy theories about, you know, oh well, he didn't go into the into the 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 ring of honor and he. You know, they should name they should name that stadium that they built in Arlington Tom Landry Stadium, and Jerry Jones isn't letting them do that. And like that's not true. Jerry Jones wants to sell the rights to the naming of the stadium. He doesn't want to just give it the name of a dead football coach. So uh, it's it's uh, but at the same time, it's like there's you know there's still people that love Tom Landry and they will not let it go. So and he's a Texan. That's the great thing about him. Flew bombers in the war. Yeah. Came back and played football. Yeah. yeah. I uh, I don't have uh, Alanis Morissette on speed dial, so we may have to come to a ruling ourselves. But is it ironic that uh, a born and bred Texan um, had to play for a, a team called the Yankees? <laughs> well, that's the irony part. <clears throat> I'm not um, sure if that's ironic or not. Yeah. Not sure if that would go in the song. I'm not sure that there's anything all that ironic in those examples of irony in that song as well. But... Uh, yeah, she's, you know, he's 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 a Texas legend and a Texas hero, and I think that there's a lot of Texans who would put him right up there next to, you know, not near Sam Houston and Davy Crockett, but you know, if if somebody wanted to and, build and Jesus, you know, yeah, and Jesus, and Jesus maybe, yeah, we're gonna build an 85 foot statue of Jesus, Sam Houston, Davy Crockett, and Tom Landry. Yeah, well, if you remember on the. Sitcom. I mean, the, if you remember on the cartoon show "The King of the Hill," uh, Hank did have a Tom Landry ceramic plate that he would sometimes talk to and get advice from. <laughs> Forgot so, about that. <laughs> and and Landry would come to him in dreams. Landry would come into him and come to him in dreams. Well, and so, I just, I mean, like the fact, like that at at one point he's got five of his former assistant coaches are are coaching their own teams in the NFL. You know that's an incredible, and the fact that Mike Ditka took orders from anybody that, is is yeah. That was just active. That was just active <laughs> coaches at the time. Yeah, there were lots more that had gone through. You know, but yeah, Ditka actually paid, played for him. He played on the team and then became an assistant coach and under Landry. So, you know, 
I, I will tell you this right now. Landry greater than Ditka. Sorry. Sorry, Bob Swirsky. But Landry greater than Ditka. <laughs> Take that, Chicago peeps. <laughs> that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or get yourself to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. Big thanks to our friend James Abendroth for helping to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. You love this show, so tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>